Welcome to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. I'm Andre Stepankowski, retired reporter and editor from the Daily News and current publisher of a online newsletter called Lower Columbia Currents. Thank you for coming on our podcast. Great to be here. So... We're going to be talking with you kind of about your career and background, and in particular, we're interested in the work you did covering Mount St. Helens. But first, could you just give us some background about yourself? Well, I actually am a native of New York, New Jersey, and I went to school back there. I went to Fairleigh Dickinson University, which just made a splash in the March Madness tournament. I moved out here in 1979 because um, I met my future wife at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and she's a Spokane native, and she had a job promised to her here so in Washington State. And so I combed the area for jobs, and I got the one here, and I've been here ever since. I never expected a volcano to erupt in my own backyard, but that's kind of probably what kept me here all these years, at least initially. And it uh, wasn't a story you wanted to leave. So here I am, 40, whatever it is, 44 years later. That's great. So if you came, if you came here in, in 79, you weren't here for very long before we had, you know, you came right in less the than eight, Less yeah. than 18 months. Unfortunately, I never got up to Spirit Lake before the eruption. Um, but obviously, you know, I was, I was hired as a school reporter. Uh, I covered the Longview School District for a year, and then I was made a government reporter in early 1980. But that soon went out the window because we had a, the mountain acting up up the, up the road here. And so I was part of the team that started covering that. I wasn't the lead reporter on that initially. That honor distinction, if you will, went to a reporter named Donna Dubeth. Um, but, you know, the, it, the mountain had been sort of perking for a couple months before it had, it had the big explosion. And then it was all hands on deck for that story. And I, the, the story that I ended up covering most intensely was the story about flooding and the aftermath of the eruption. And that's the story that even today persists with us. In fact, I was expecting a call from the Corps of Engineers today about Mount St. Helens and about the sediment problems. And because that story has persisted for so long, I gradually picked up all the other threads of the story uh, the volcano, you know, the one, the effort to create a national monument there, which happened in 1982, the effort to um, develop the recreational aspect of the volcano. I covered the lawsuits involving the inadequacy of the blue and red zones, the hazard zones that were in place at the time of the eruption. And so, you know, all of these different aspects of the volcano stories sort of glommed onto me as time went on. And I probably was I'm assuming the only full-time volcano reporter in the United States for the better part of five or six years, you know, up until about 1986 or so. And, then, you know, then I still covered the mountain, but there were other stories to cover. And I largely covered the environmental stories, spotted owls, salmon, dioxin in the mills, uh, 
and those type of stories until I was made the city editor in 1999 when McClellan Knott's family sold the paper to Howard Enterprises. Um, and so from then on, I was an editor, but I still did quite a bit of reporting because the staff was small, it was inexperienced, and you know the amount of news in this community just continued to escalate. This has always been a very good news community, and what I mean by that, there's just a lot going on here. It's not always all bad, you know, but it's just a, a very active news town, and maybe that's because we were so adept at digging it up and being close to the community, but it was always fun to work here. But I have to admit, I admit, I, I admit that I came here only expecting to stay 18 months. Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, my wife and I, we, we were engaged at the time, the Mountain Blue. In fact, there's a picture of us on the cover of a book called the, the, the uh, anyways, I can't remember right off the top of my head. Uh, at our wedding a month after, we were wearing ash masks. We were in Spokane because oh, wow. you know, we got married oh, wow. in Spokane, and even though it was a joke at that point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but. I mean, the mountain, the mountain kept me here because it wasn't a story you really could easily leave. Mm -hmm. And by the time all of that passed, you know, there wasn't a good reason to leave anymore. I'd really grown up in, even though I was a native of the New York area, I actually grew up in a small town, and I've always preferred small towns because I like to see the people I'm writing for. Uh, I think that keeps you more honest because, you know, you have to look them in the eye when you see them at the grocery mm -hmm. store, and if you kind of stab them in the back... You know, you don't. You, you feel you get a real kind of ugly feeling in your gut, and I think that you know, being a small, small town journalism is, is is such an essential thing because it often sets the stage for bigger papers to do stories too. You know, they get their they they you know a lot of bigger papers will see what's going on at a small paper, and they'll go and write about it themselves, or they'll put two, two and two together and make a bigger, broader trend story out of it. And obviously, on Mount St. Helens. I think we were a leader. I mean, people followed us, you know, because, and that was natural given the fact that we were the closest daily newspaper to it and won a Pulitzer Prize mm -hmm. for our coverage of it. And I think that speaks for the quality of the work that we did. But we, you know, we continued to cover it for years afterwards. And it was obviously a, a, a defining story for me and my career here. And I think it is for our area, for sure. You said um, you were part of a bigger team. How many? people was that reporting from the <laughs> we had our staff was we had at the time the daily news had a staff of i think 10 or 11 full-time what you call hard news city side reporters mm -hmm. in addition to that we had the features team and we had a sports team and everybody was covering it we even had a computer technician technician do a story once wow. um uh, <laughs> He didn't know how to write very well, so one of our <laughs> staff writers had to help to help him write the piece. But we, at the time, the McClellan Nat family still owned the paper. We also still owned the paper in Port Angeles, the Port Angeles Daily News, and we owned the Bellevue Journal American, which is now defunct. But we were able to borrow reporters from them too. Mm -hmm. The first two weeks after the eruption, we did in in in, in surplus of 400 locally produced stories. Wow. To say wow. nothing about the you know the dozens and hundreds of photographs and you know but we, I mean we covered the story like crazy all year. I mean there was probably not a day that went by in 1980 that didn't have at least two stories about the volcano, mm -hmm. and you know I mean there was I mean what else was there to cover? Yeah, you know in a sense I remember to this day I had been 
in the run-up to the volcano, the big eruption, I was working on a story about the evolution of the real estate market here, and I'd done a ton of research, and that got all blown out of the water yeah. because nobody wanted to read about that, and by the time <laughs> I could get around to it, the, 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 so much time had passed, all the research was dated. Mm-hmm. So it was such an all-consuming story, and it, and I always like to credit it for creating me as a journalist because it, I admit that I was struggling as a reporter before that, and I... Um, it gave me something to really focus on and learn how to think like a journalist. And what I mean by that is how to find stories, how to play off the news, how to get around you know, institutional and informational roadblocks. It just gave me something focused and a story of such all-consuming importance. It, it just gave me a stage to develop mm-hmm. on. And I well, I may it may have happened anyway, but I always credit Mount St. Helens for making me a, the journalist that I hope I am. I just that's like an incredible, I don't know, like stage to come out onto. What was it like? Were there lots of other reporters traveling here? Oh God, the place was packed. I mean, our newsroom, the Daily News, became sort of a um, makeshift bureau for a lot of newspapers across the country. Yeah, I mean, this was a story that was an international story, mm-hmm. and we and so we had a lot of other press here. Uh, we had, uh, and you know, they were competing for us for stories too, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. But obviously, we had an inside track on more because we knew the geography of it mm-hmm. better, and so on and so forth. I mean, the stories I remember best from those days that I did are, are really kind of the people stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the one that stands out to me the most is story about. The Castle Rock dentist, uh, Bob Manting, and his wife, Sandy, and their kids. And they had a beautiful house up on the Toodle River that was, at the time, probably worth a quarter of a million dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, translate that to today, mm-hmm. it was easily a million-dollar house. And it was just ra- I mean, it was just inundated with mud and ruined. And, and how gracious they were talking to me. And, you know, they were moving into another house where I interviewed them, and they were offering me pizza. And, you know, he wasn't really crying about the loss of his house he was crying about the savior of his family mm-hmm. uh, you know and that, and that his family would persist the house and he had worked his patootie off himself mm-hmm. doing a lot of the work on that place and he, it all went to, got lost in an afternoon but mm-hmm. I remember how gracious he was and I remember how gracious other people were and I think any story of that magnitude you know you everybody gets impressed by the size of the eruption i was the first reporter up there i was in the plane when roger worth took his famous picture of the of the eruption column that was on time magazine it was on the cover of uh, the daily news's um volcano book which was on the new york times bestseller list for weeks afterwards i was in the plane i I was getting i was as sick as a dog when that plane took because i was so airsick oh no you know um and the first story I wrote from that plane trip was was very bad. It was overwritten, and I, you know, I, I did much better work after that. <laughs> uh, but it's there are all a bunch of memories that I'll obviously live the rest of my life with. But again, the the, the story, the volcano stories that stick out the most to me are the stories about the people, you know, the people involved in some of the who, who lost loved ones and who were involved in the lawsuit, like the. You know the red zone lawsuit, like the, the um, Ralph and Jeanette Killian Evader. Um, you know their their son and daughter-in-law were killed up there, and John had been a warehouser logger. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> could you explain um, for people who might not know what those lawsuits were about? The lawsuits can, was filed by a, some families of people who died in the in the eruption, and they were, they were filed against initially against the state, and then it was modified to include warehouser. 
a year later, and the contention was that the red and the blue zones, restricted zones, were completely inadequate, which they were because they hardly existed on the northwest side of the mountain where the, you know, the mountain was bulging three, five feet a day. Uh, Weyerhaeuser um, obviously didn't have any authority to create a, a zone or not, but there was a lot of controversy about that. Uh, obviously resulted in the lawsuit. The lawsuit was sort of settled out of court eventually. The state was dismissed because of sovereign immunity. But, uh, you know, I going back to the Killians, John Killian was a warehouse logger and had worked several miles closer to the mountain during the week mm -hmm. than where he died. He died at Fawn Lake uh, up on top. He wasn't there. He was there to fish. That was the mm -hmm. first uh, weekend of, of, of lake fishing up mm -hmm. there that spring. And I'll never forget Ralph Killian, his father, said that, you know, you know, Jimmy Carter and Dixie Lee Ray and a lot of other officials, you know, blamed these people for their own deaths. They mm -hmm. said, you know, they were lawbreakers or this or that. And, you know, they weren't. John John had been in the Navy and he's, his discharge papers specifically said that he never disobeyed orders. He wasn't a, a renegade of any sort. His father said that all the officials had to do was apologize for calling his son a lawbreaker and he would have never, he would have taken his name off that lawsuit. So it's just stories like that. You know, I knew that I, I got to know Mike and Lou Moore very well. They were survivors. They had their two ch young children up in the Green River uh, Valley. They survived total darkness for two or three hours with thunder and lightning, and they took shelter in an old miner's cabin. So those are the, those are the yeah. stories that are the most memorable and potent to me because they speak to how the thing affected individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was really struck. We had a woman uh, come out and do an event here who did a biography of David Johnston and she really emphasized the the victims and i i mean i grew up here i grew up with you know my my grandfather they lived up west side highway toward castle rock and uh, my grandfather was a real enthusiast collected all kinds of clippings and photos and all kinds of things and so i grew up with the story but i didn't i was really struck when i read about Dixie Lee Ray and Jimmy Carter and the things that were said about about some of those victims. I don't know if people remember that or realize that now, but yeah. Well, David Johnston was not actually in any kind of a danger zone. He was, I mean, officially no. dead. He was on the very fringe of it, mm -hmm. but he knew he was in danger. And the USGS knew he was in danger. In fact, they were supposed to be bringing an armored personnel carrier up there yes. to him the day, the next day, I think the following Monday. Yeah. And he wasn't actually supposed to be there. He was sub subbing, subbing for his, for Harry Glicken, who was a, a graduate student who actually later got killed at another volcano years later. Yeah. Um, David Johnston was, um, you know, was no renegade, but, you know, some, the USGS needed somebody up there. It's doubtful the armored personnel carrier would have saved him. It probably would have just been blown right off the ridge along with the rest of it. You know, I didn't know him. You know, he obviously was made famous for the comparing the volcano to a keg of dynamite. Mm -hmm which he was, you know, there's a lot of controversy about how much the USGS, how the USGS brass act reacted to that. Some people say he was certainly upbraided. Mm -hmm. It was certainly much more colorful and understandable language than, you know, the other geologists were using at the time because I went to all of those press conferences and sometimes it was just really difficult mm -hmm. to, under, to really kind of put in some scale, you know, what, what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. But that said, I mean, the mountain did surpass all the known precedents in its past. It's not that that eruption on May 18th, 1980 was the biggest because there have been bigger ones, but though, but never one which the lateral blast was so, you know, so large and extended 
so far beyond the top of the vo- volcano because in some places it, trees were killed 20 miles away. Mm. I mean, when you think about yeah. that, it's yeah. like, you know, that's wider than the mountain's base itself. And it was, you know, so that was their fault there. I think that the USGS wanted to speak with a single voice. Mm-hmm. The There were other voices talking about the dangers of a lateral blast. There was a guy named Barry Voigt, who was a professor at Penn State, who had written a paper about this and shared it with the USGS, I think 10 or 10 days to two weeks before May 18th. But you know, the public never really heard about these things in any kind of a clear and concise and definitive way. It's interesting to compare what happened at Mount St. Helens with what has gone on with climate change and with COVID. You know, there's a certain amount of the public that science denial is a political and cultural problem. And we certainly saw that at Mount St. Helens. You know, I'm, you know, for, 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 who is to blame for it? Is I'm, you know, I think there was blame on both the press's part, the public part, and the scientific community's part. But it seems to be science denial seems to be built into our political and social culture in this country. I'm, and I'm not sure how to get around it. But you see it time and time and time again, and it seems like we don't ever want to learn our lesson. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, kind of a collective hubris, if you will. And I've written about that, you know, that, you know, how, you know, I don't know, you know, people who deny climate change, what, what, what are your qualifications, you know? I mean, you, you, have, you, have you studied the, the, the numbers? Have you studied the trends? Have you studied the carbon levels, so on and so forth? It's like there's that famous, going back to Mount St. Helens, that one film showed that logger eating a sandwich. You've probably seen it saying, oh, I'm not afraid. It's not going to do anything to me, you know, just a typical good old boy, mm-hmm. you know, dismissive of the, of the science yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, people like that got their comeuppance. Well, yeah. Um, but, you know, you ignore science at your peril. And I think that's one of the lessons of Mount St. Helens to some degree. Um, it's certainly been true in other, in other things. I definitely remember, like, when I was a kid. So um, I was born in 1985. So <clears throat> it was, like, in the early 90s. It seems like every year we would have an assembly in elementary school. <clears throat> about Mount St. Helens and they would show this video and it was like a lot of a lot of that about like stubbornness and it it made me wonder too knowing about there's like a certain amount of victim blaming going on if they were trying to continue doing that but also to kind of teach a lesson about you know ignoring the scientific advice too one thing it's a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. for sure um I recently, I'm annually on a talk show um, that's done, done by the Mount St. Helens Institute, mm-hmm. uh, which is set up, it's a private organization that is set up to enhance public knowledge about the volcano. And me and uh, the author of a book called The uh, Untold Story of Mount St. Helens by Steve Olson are always, always, have appeared on this show for about four or five years running now. And one of the questions that we've, that we pose to ourselves and to pose to the people in the class which has been done by Zoom, by the way, um, is what, what, what would you have done? Would you mm-hmm. have, would you have t- tempted fate? Mm-hmm. Would you have listened? And, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, about two weeks before the big eruption, me and two other reporters and one of the reporters' girlfriends went up the South Fork of the Toodle River to, to take a look at the volcano. Mm-hmm. Now, we were far enough up there where I don't think we would have been killed but we were perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. We were mm-hmm. perfectly legal. So I wasn't going around a roadblock. You know, I wasn't 
a thrill seeker. I just wanted to see the volcano. I, you know, but you know, on the other hand, you know, there was that whole group of people who owned cabins at Spirit Lake that were up there the day before, mm-hmm. and they were going to go back up again the next day too to retrieve their belongings. When that caravan of people went up there on Saturday, we had two reporters, two reporters and a photographer up there. If the mountain had blown, we would have lost, mm-hmm. you know, you yeah. know, you know, twenty percent of our reporting staff. If you want to look at it in cold-blooded numbers. Mm-hmm. Wow. And the only photographer was on happened to be around at that point, you know. So, and yeah, we were reporting, you know, the potential of a killer slide. I mean, that was yeah. in all the press at the time. I mean, so you know, did we, you know, so it's kind of easy to Monday morning mm-hmm. quarterback this, and but it's and, it, and it's sort of difficult to put yourself back in those shoes. But Les Nelson, who was the sheriff at this time, I give him a lot of credit. He, you know, he said when you got the side of a mountain getting jacked up five feet a day, you got to take, you got to pay attention to it, mm-hmm. and take it seriously. And Dick Bullock, who was the the area commander for the state patrol, I mean, the, the roadblock kept getting moved closer and closer to the volcano, because they could, because manning them was ridiculous because the road, the logging roads weren't closed, the highway was closed, but the you know so it was easy for people to go around mm-hmm. the the uh, the roadblocks totally legally because you know mm-hmm. but he refused to staff it wow. i mean as it got closer he yeah. refused to staff it because he thought his own troopers would be in danger and he was obviously right they would have been mm-hmm. killed up there and you know the thing everybody talks about the fact that it was an act of god but the act of god was that it act happened on a sunday instead of a monday because mm-hmm. how many god knows how many warehouse or loggers yeah. and mm-hmm. forest service people would have been killed as well you know i mean the deaths for an event of that magnitude were miraculously few mm-hmm. and you know in the case of three people harry truman and the couple that were camped at uh, uh, you know at their had permission to be there bob case weather and beverly weatherall they all had permission to be there jerry martin the ham radio person was way outside the zone uh reed blackburn the vancouver columbian photographer was sort of working for national geographic although that was a kind of a controversial thing at the time was certainly up there legally and was not trying to you know be a thrill seeker who's doing his job you know i mean most of the people up there were to- totally totally innocent but it could have been much much worse i think it's so interesting too um when you're talking about sort of the long tail of a story like that because for local reporters like you said those stories don't end they might end for somebody out on another side of the country this big event happens and oh, yeah. it drops out of the collective attention span i had read a, a piece that was about the um the local paper that covered the uh, sandy hook shooting and they were talking about that idea different kind of an event but that the story never ends you're always covering the impacts forever mm-hmm. and so I'm, i guess i'm curious to hear more about that as you got further away from the event how how the stories changed and how how your sense of it evolved well, it's like I say, I think parts of the story is still with us. You know, right. the, the flood control effort, you know, now they're, they're still trying to figure out what to do with Spirit Lake in terms of, you know, the drainage tunnel there has only got the one gate and it's corroding. You know, yeah. so, I mean, there's there's still actual news developments occurring. So it's not just a matter of covering the psychological reverberations, mm-hmm. if you will, of mm-hmm. the event. And, you know, obviously the, 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 the pace of the story has has waned. It was interesting that when I was still the editor at the paper when the 40th anniversary came along, mm-hmm. and one of the natural things we had always done was to try and interview the people who had survived and what mm-hmm. people who had lost 
relatives to there. Yeah. And this time around, we couldn't get anybody to talk to us. Mm. And in some cases, people died, obviously. Yeah. But a lot of people just, you know, they told their stories. Right. They had gone through the trauma. They had tried to put it behind them. They'd made their peace with it or whatever. And they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Mm. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think that's why it was important, so important to document those stories early on and to document them over the decades because I think people do finally burn out. And the main actors pass on. I mean, I'm one of the last of the people who were intimately involved in this story. You know, Van Youngquist passed away last year. He was the county commissioner that really kind of led the county flood, flood effort here. You know, he's gone along with his memories, and it's important to document all of these things. So there are still aspects of the story that are still very actively newsworthy. Mm -hmm. You know, the stories about the aftermath, you know, the psychological aftermath, that, that's sort of kind of waned. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, it's at this point becoming more a story of how to um, you know, still manage the flood risks, still take advantage, you know, how, how the area should be managed. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's still a story that's out there as to whether the Forest Service or the National Park Service should be managing the monument. Mm -hmm. I favor the Park Service. But it's obviously not the story of intensity that it was oh, no, years no. and years ago. But there's still a lot to keep. Even 10 or 15 years after the eruption, I was still pretty busy covering the volcano. And yeah. don't forget when it started erupting again, Right. In 2000, was it 2004? 2004 to 2004 yeah. to 2008, I think it was, right? Yeah. I think that's yeah, right. I was in college, so that's right. Yeah. So it, went, it had a four year continuous eruption, nothing, nothing real violent. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it was like nothing changed. It was like all hoopla again, you know? I mean, right. you know, and there's just a fascination with volcanoes i think that's bred of several things and it's one of them is that we have absolutely no control of them yeah you know they they are they put you in in your place you know you, you we can't i remember once somebody saying well why can't they just pour a bunch of cement into the throat of a volcano <laughs> i said you know how much you're talking about be more concrete than it's ever been poured in human history that's just something else for it to spray you know out. well yeah of course and it's not it was just you know it, the whole concept is ridiculous yeah. but you know i mean it's just it, it, I think that's ultimately what uh, it, one of the potent aspects of the volcano is is that it's it's represents something that is a primordial force that's completely out of our control. We can't do Absolutely. anything about it. We can kind of deal with some of the aftermaths, like we have with the river dredging, like the tunnel to Spirit Lake, so on. <laughs> we could try to make an asset out of it, you know, through things right. like the monument and campgrounds mm -hmm. and hiking trails and whatnot. But I think ultimately the, you know, the message of the volcano is that you know we we aren't in control, and to me that's a good thing. Yeah, the, uh, when you're talking about like wondering what you would do, I was thinking like the closest thing I could think of, uh, it'd be like wildfire. But that's something we, you know, to an extent you, we can control it or or monitor it well, to some degree yeah. I mean, you know, if it we gets really it, hot and dry right. you can have all the fire lookouts <laughs> uh -huh. you want and all the right. fire warnings you know we're gonna have lightning strikes that are gonna ignite the thing mm -hmm. anyway yeah. you know and of course then you got the idiots who's you know who started that fire in the gorge mm -hmm. several oh, years yeah, ago but Creek. you know who knows who's to say it wouldn't have started any on its own mm -hmm. somewhere else i mean it happened that they began started it was stupid and they got penalized for it as justifiably so 
But like yeah, last but... summer, we were there was like a fire, and we were up camping, and we could see you know the helicopters dropping, and everyone said we we're fine where we were, and we believed them. So yeah, and it was it was fine, but. Forest fires are an immense event. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, you think about the horsepower that goes into creating some of these things. Oh, you yeah. know, it's just, it's like everything we do is so puny by comparison. <laughs> I wish we could have harnessed the energy of the Mount, the Mount oh, St. Hills oh eruption gosh. or something, you know, but it's, you know, you just yeah. can't do that. So could you tell us what it was like getting the Pulitzer? What was You that want that particular like? day? Sure. <laughs> Well, you know, we had won the Sigma Delta Chi National Award for our coverage of the volcano a couple weeks before. I was actually in New York visiting my folks when that happened. So I came back, and we knew what day the Pulitzers were supposed to be announced. And so we were all sort of listening because they were announced in New York. Mm -hmm. And so New York is three hours ahead of Longview. And we were an afternoon paper at the time with a noon deadline. And so, you know, we're all, nobody could pay attention to anything. I mean, I was covering the police beat that morning, and I just was making one screw up after another, and so was everybody else. Everybody was on edge. We were all at each other's throats. The longer it went on, we didn't hear anything, because we thought, well, they'll give us some advance notice. Mm. So noon comes, and there's still no announcements. And so we said, darn. I said, maybe we didn't win. And so, but people stuck stuck around anyway, because usually at noon, the newsroom would empty for lunch. And around 12, six minutes after 12 or something like that, Ted Nat's phone rings, and Ted's office had a window into the newsroom. And everybody just, like, you know, looks at him. And he gives a <laughs> thumbs up. The place oh, went wild. Man. The place went wild. Um, we, I mean, we know, had known we had done a good job. And I think the only thing that obviously tempered it was the fact that, you know, a lot of people suffered, mm. you know, you know, we had 57 people die. We had, you know, at that point, I mean, you know, we had, there were 200 people, families that lost their homes on the Tulin Cowlitz River. You know, people lost, you know, warehouser had taken a 70 some odd million pre-tax right off from the eruption. Mm-hmm. The Forest Service lost a ton of timber too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, in, in many, it was such a profound event for this area. But, you know, but it didn't temper our enthusiasm <laughs> yeah, for sure. winning the award. I mean, the fact of the matter is to win a Pulitzer Prize, I mean, you could do the best job ever covering a city council, a routine city council meeting, but you're not going to win a Pulitzer mm, Prize. Right. You need a gigantic Scale. story to, mm-hmm. to, 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 you know, for it to obviously attract some kind of a notice. So we were obviously very proud. Ted sent me out to buy champagne. We went 300 bucks. We went through that in about 15 minutes. Wow. We went through over $1,000 worth of champagne that afternoon (laughs) and the next day nobody was in a mood to work i bet not (laughs) but we were able to get a uh the reporter who had to write that story on deadline we got it in the Mm -hmm. paper that day the the layout editor left the space for it on the top of page one (laughs) just because he was so confident that we were gonna win wow and you know we were faced with well what are we gonna put there if it doesn't (laughs) happen but it came so bob bob Kreider had to write the story in like five minutes and which is, you know, for a story like that, it, it almost writes itself. Shag a couple quotes from the publisher and the managing editor, and you've yeah. got it, you know. So it wasn't that it was a supreme journalistic thing, but it was just funny that it came down to that. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting how it was, it was obviously nice to win that award, and it's something that we'll, I'll be proud of the rest of my life. 
But I was only 24 years old, <laughs> 25, when I won the Pulitzer. And I like to think that I've done much, much, much better work since then, and I have. But, you know, it's not, it wasn't of a scale that was ever going to measure up to that kind of uh, august level. So that's, the, that, that's one of the thoughts I've always had about it. The second is that yeah, you can win a Pulitzer, but you know if you don't get the, the, the you know the school lunch menus right and all the other routine <laughs> news that goes in the paper, the yeah. first thing people will do is throw it in your face. Well, you know you won a Pulitzer, but you can't get such and such. You know this little, you know, and it's important. I oh, mean, yeah. it's people rely on the paper. You know, at least they did. Um, you know, a newspaper is such an important resource for a community because I've always said that the, the, the you know that a newspaper is a way it, it gives a sense of community to a to a community to a town mm-hmm. it you know people grieve through the paper you know you have a tragic death of a young person people read about it they know that oh my neighbor lost somebody even if they don't know the person they still you know somehow em- empathize that, that you know they, they you know they read about layoffs so they know you know they they read about efforts to make the community better they they read about the, the, the efforts, you know, the, the trends that are making the community struggle. I mean, without a, without a, a newspaper, a community is adrift. It's living in a, a vacuum, an information vacuum, and you, it, it, it just, you lack cohesion. And I think one of the, kind of morph into a different subject here, I think one of the things about this town that's changed in my time here is that the community's not as close-knit as it used to be. When I was here, there were still people who, who had met R.A. Long. There weren't many, and they were all pretty much pretty old at the time because that was six. you know, R.A. Long died 1926 or 28, 28, I think. And, you know, and so, but, you know, the McClellans knew who he was. Mm-hmm. You know, Mr. Mack was still, started the paper I mean, in 1923. He was still at the paper. He died in 1981. Died just two months before, just two months, just two months before we won the Pulitzer. Oh, wow. That was, that was one of the sad things. But, you know, people, this town was founded as a, a planned community with a definite purpose and a definite sort of sense of destiny, if you want to call it that. It wasn't always good. You know, there were covenants in place that excluded blacks. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, all right, long thumbed this nose at Kelso because he thought it was too wild and woolly a town. And some of that, some of that sowed the seeds of, of, of discord that even still exists today. But the town was... It was it was close knit. People knew each other. They had grown up. It was a pioneer community in many ways. You know, when you read, read the early history, you know, people would go out to lunch, and they would go to the hotel, and they'd come come out for lunch. And they couldn't get out because there were railroad tracks in front of them. <laughs> I mean, there were things were moving so fast, and so the, you know, the town had sort of a manifest destiny and a sort of a special sense of being, I think. But that's vanished, mm-hmm. partly as a result of that generation passing away, partly because we have a hard time. The community is getting older, and we're having a hard time replacing with younger people. Not the fact that you two here are young people <laughs> is a, is a, is a hopeful thing. Um, but you know, if you look at the statistics, you know we don't. You know, a lot of young people don't. They go to college and they don't come back here. And so people point to the you know, the lack of uh, educational educated workforce here. Well, it's not that we're not educating them; it's just that we're educating them and they, they don't come back. It's my grandmother used to say, "You you know you raise them for somebody else." Well, this community is doing a lot of that, and we need to find some way to to attract young blood. We need to have people. We need more people here to have fresh ideas, 
And I think that's one of our biggest, as we celebrate 100 years, I think that's one of this community's biggest challenges. What kind of a community do we want to be and how are we going to give another boost of energy and rejuvenation to the, to the you know, R.A. Long's planned city? Mm-hmm. This town was started with vision, but it doesn't have a lot right now. You know, I mean, there are some, you know, we've had some some successes on the industrial front recently. Warehouser, um, Norpac. Mm-hmm. Just as invested in their in you know fifty million dollars there, nice. West Rock has invested new money down there. So you know the pulp industry on the waterfront looks like it's going to be in some decent shape for a while. You know modern commerce through um, that's so dependent on Amazon and stuff like that needs boxes. Well, we're making plenty of them here. You know, so oh, yeah. that those that's a good trend. You know, there's the you know that new development up in Castle Rock. Cowlitz Landing, which, and then, you know, Klamath has an industrial park down there. You know, but these industrial parks have been slow to fill. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the Longview's Mint Farm thing, you know, that's, you know, hasn't generated anywhere near the jobs that it can't. We have a housing problem here, you know, which is why we, part of the reason we have a homeless problem, part of the reason. But, you know, if you look at the studies, the number one reason for homelessness is not mental health problems, it's not drug problems, it's, 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 affordable housing and not to say those other things are not issues but that's job one and we don't we're not creating enough and we're not creating enough opportunity for young people to come back here and enjoy themselves and find quality of life and there's there's plenty to have around here we're you know not far from the ocean we're not far from the hills we're on the water mm-hmm. you know but we need to improve the amount of amenities and the, and the number the, the number of the the, the, the the stock of housing that is appealable to a younger generation. You know, I've I wrote recently about our rivers. Mm-hmm. And our rivers here have always been used for industrial purposes. And I think that that's, and certainly for the era that this town grew up in, that's understandable. But I think that our vision for the waterfront should be broader than that and should include things like you know, I mean, I, I suggested to the, that the port turn its Barlow Point property into, you know, high-end, you know, condominiums, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, you know, or it's like a combination of condos and recreation parks mm-hmm. type of thing. Uh, is it going to generate the amount of tax dollars that a heavy industry would? No. But, I mean, I think it, it creates energy mm-hmm. and it creates, it'll create vitality that this community sort of, to me, seems to be lacking. So, I mean, moving to our second century, I think the biggest challenge is trying to find a new, a new, uh, a new vision for the town, reverse the decline of, 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 of the, you know, the aging population, and basically kind of finding a way to rekindle Longview's and this county's whole sense of identity. Because I think one of the things that's always appealed to me here is that this is not part of greater Portland. You know, I don't live in yeah. Troutdale where, you know, it's, you know, I could be living in, you know, in Sandy. I could be living in Beaverton. I mean, you know, you don't know. There's nothing to distinguish one town from the next. Mm-hmm. I mean, this town is, I mean, Kelso and Longview together are sort of an oasis because of the geography and, and its distance from the Longview-Kelso area. And I think we want to preserve that. I think we want to preserve our self-identity. It's one of the things that makes, uh, can help, you know, retain that sense and build a, a, a sense of community. I think those things are so important. It's, they're, they're, are they tangible? They're tangible. Are they economically tangible? I don't know. But I think in the long run, they're all good things. What they're, are you up to right now? 
I, I, you know, I used to write a column for the paper after I retired every couple of weeks. The paper discontinued that in November of last of uh, this past year, right after the election. I'm not going to get into the reasons. I just it's, uh, obviously it was not a very uh, pleasant thing for me, mm-hmm. but I have might be a blessing in disguise for me. Um, I'm you know I write a column on Substack.com. Mm-hmm. It's called Lower Columbia Currents, currents being like the river flow. But it's also a playoff of uh, an, a kind of an anachronistic name for American newspaper, Currents, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like the Hartford Current, which is, plays, is C-O-U-R-A-N-T, which is the French word from, you know, au courant, which mm-hmm. means, you know, in the know or kind of fashionable or up to date. So, you know, I, I sort of a play on words to, you know, attract attention, if you will. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I'm working a lot harder on that, you know, because I'm really got to do at least one column a, a week. Uh, had one this morning. And I try to, I mean, I know people think that I'm a flaming liberal. I don't consider myself a flaming liberal. I, I'm definitely left of center. But I, what I stand for is decency and common sense. I'm not going to quote somebody just to say I'm quoting them if they're telling an outright lie right. mm-hmm. or that they're so full of it that their eyes are brown. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Um, you know, I wrote... I mean, I wrote straight journalism for years and years, and so now I'm an opinion writer. That does I still have to be held to the standards of accuracy and fairness of argument that you know any other journalist would hold. But I don't feel compelled to interview somebody if what they're saying is just pure poppycock. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun. It's you know, it's a way of staying engaged in the community at a time that's important for the community and important for our nation. Yeah, and it seems like Substack as a platform is really growing. It is. I mean, it's it's really uneven. Mm-hmm. You know, you have some real crackpots on there, <laughs> but then you also have some really great writers yeah. like the American historian. Um, her, her her thing is called uh, Letters from an American. Um, Heather Cox. Heather, yeah, yeah. Heather Cox Richardson. Yeah, there's some great writers like Helen Cox Richardson on there. Her Letters from an American. You know, so I mean, I'm in August company, if you will, and I'm also yeah. in some crackpot company. <laughs> but you know, I think that I mean, it's a form of journalism that I think is part of the future. The one thing I will go into in terms of my history at the Daily News, the editor, when she discontinued my column, told me, "Well, you don't understand the new journalism," and I find it very satisfying that I am engaged mm-hmm. in the new journalism with this thing. Um, because, I mean, you know, I don't need it. There's no capital costs. Yeah. There's absolutely no capital costs except having a computer right. and an email account. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. And I don't charge. Um, I've had several people pledge. But, and then, you know, people might think that I'm crazy for doing it for nothing. But, it's how, but that's how strongly I feel about the need for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, as I said before, I, uh, you know, the importance of a newspaper and a newspaper's voice in a community is so essential and not to sound egotistical who better than me to write this for this local community you know i've been a journalist in this community for 43 years you know i think i still have a pretty good reputation also people call me comrade stepankowski (laughs) um but i mean you know i wouldn't have been in this community for 43 years if i didn't establish a reputation for accuracy and Mm -hmm. fairness and i i think the fact that you know the the newspaper doesn't do many editorials is a is a is a is a niche that needs to be filled, and I'm glad to fill it, and I hope that people find it interesting and 
rewarding. I have in three months I have 263 subscribers as of this morning. It's still small, and the one thing that uh, that is a problem with this type of journalism is the problem with electronic journalism in general is just that it tends to be self-selecting. People who are going to disagree with me are probably not going to subscribe. And, you know, in some cases, they're the ones who need to hear it. Mm -hmm. Just like the reverse is true, too. I mean, you know, I delve into Fox News as much as it, some of it drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've, I've obviously attacked Tucker Carlson for his views on, uh, on Ukraine. And uh, I didn't do anything about the recent thing about the insurrection videos, which is... Mm -hmm. Every, you know, I try not to do what other people are already doing. I try to keep it regional and local. But I like to write about Ukraine, obviously, because my grandfather was Ukrainian patriot uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And so I, I'm Ukrainian origin, so I have a good deal of interest in that. And it's an important world story that I can offer a, a, a personal and broader perspective than most people would get from the sources that they're reading. So that's the, an indulgement for me. But I find people interesting. But, you know, I did a story about a gal who was a, uh, she's from Ukraine, and she was a Longview Exchange student here in, in 2015-16, and she came by for a visit. So I interviewed her and put, put it on my webpage, and people found it interesting. So it's a local story. Right. You know, you, you can't read it anywhere else. Have you seen um, the Vancouver Library, the downtown one, is doing it's like an exhibit of uh, like Ukrainian diplomas of teens who didn't get to graduate high school. I didn't I haven't seen it. Yeah, no. you should so, look in. It's uh, I just read a little like description of it and it sounded heartbreaking. Well, it's just hard. I mean, yeah. you know, there's another yet another story out today that the Russians are taking Ukrainian children yeah. <clears throat> out of the country, and you know, I mean, if if, if that wasn't genocide, what is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's why the, the Hague, you know, in, indicted yeah. Putin and the, uh, <clears throat> the the woman who's responsible for all of these, uh, their abductions, let's call them yeah. what they are. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, what's it going to come of? I mean, you know, it would be interesting to see if if Putin took an airliner across France, if the French Air Force would try to force <laughs> the plane down. Right. <clears throat> right. Which has been done here and there. But it's it's a terrible. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, and the thing about it is that I mean, the, the, the Russians have been trying to kill off vestiges of Ukraine for centuries. This isn't just a Putin thing. I mean, my grandfather got in trouble because he was distributing pro-Ukrainian literature. I mean, Ukraine. There wasn't even a, you couldn't even print anything in Ukrainian in the late nineteenth century, mm -hmm. and so he, you know, he got he got ratted out somehow or another, and they found him, you know, case full of what they considered subversive literature. Mm -hmm. He escaped. Wow. He escaped while he was out on bail, or he would have spent the rest of his life in Siberia. Then mm. he was only, what, 20, 22 years old at the time. People don't, you know, people here, I always kind of, <laughs> I always laugh when people always bring out the tea card, tyranny mm -hmm. in this kind. People don't know what tyranny is. They don't know what it is. Mm. There was a letter to the editor of the Daily News yesterday about somebody bitching out Marie Glusenkamp Perez for voting to extend the, um, the vaccines mandate or something for federal employees that's mm -hmm. tyranny give me a break all they're trying to do is protect the public's health mm -hmm. you know i mean you could maybe disagree with the policy but don't go off saying it it's tyranny it's a legitimate response to a mm -hmm. to a what's been a horrific disease and everybody yeah. is forgetting how horrific it was because the deaths have gone down because of vaccines mm -hmm. and masks mm -hmm. and social distancing 
I mean, it would have been a far worse. We would have lived the Spanish flu if it wasn't for the science of this thing. So, I mean, I think that I think trying to keep a sense of perspective is such an important thing for journalists to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do. I continue to try to do. And you're doing a column now for the reader as well? I do a column, which is a very different feel to it. And Sue Piper, the publisher, you know, I, I do the column in exchange for an ad for my Substack thing. But I would do it for Sue anyway. But it's nice that she gives me the ad. But it's a different type of writing. It's 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 more philosophical and, and uh, mm-hmm. sort of, um, you know, the first one I did was My Love of Rivers. And my goal, I don't have a long bucket list, I said, but one of them is to visit every wade at least into every major river system in the state. Mm-hmm. I can't visit every river, but I can at least get into the system, you know, the valley, right. if you will. I mean, you could go into the Columbia and have the, half the state covered right there and then, <laughs> but I mean, I don't count that. But, uh. but it was it was just why I love rivers, why they're important to us, what how they, you know, sitting by them makes you think and mm-hmm. about life and kind of the Buddhist way and how much control you have of your life and how much nature's in control and whatnot. The last one, the one that's in this issue this month, is about the value of solitude. And uh, I studied I studied the poet Wordsworth for a whole year when I was in college. I, I love poetry. I think it really helped shape me as a writer. But a lot of his poetry is inspired by experiences in solitude, almost all of them. And I think that, you know, today in this day and age, you know, we go for a run. What do we have? We have the earbuds on. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, you know, we go, even people swimming have earbuds on. They never are alone. They go in the car, they turn the stereo on or whatever. I mean, getting in a car and taking a, a trip to Portland or something is to me a treat. You know why? Because I don't listen to anything. <laughs> and I just, because I'm left with my own thoughts uh-huh. and yeah. obviously trying to pay attention to the road. <laughs> but it's when I, I have downtime. It's when I yeah. think and when I have a chance to sort of, do self-assessment. Mm-hmm. I write my columns in my head or at least come up with thoughts for them. I mean, it's just time to sort of just get away from the noise of society and just reflect on what's going on in my life and what's going on, what I should be telling my, my readers and what I should be doing for my family or, or how I get around problems or, you know, to, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just... Yeah. This, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel's, Garfunkel, you know, the sounds of mm-hmm. silence, are such an underappreciated thing in this day and age. We're always running from. We we can't be disconnected. It's like right. people go into a panic, and I said, enjoy it, enjoy it, use it. It's part of it's part of life. Ah. I also wrote one about um, the February issue. Was one about a letter that my my wife is on the on the yeah. library board, and I think Austin has seen this. Um, about the value of, about this letter that was found in a book that was checked out of a Washington, D.C. Yeah. library in the yes. 50s. And the letter was a letter of reprimand to an employee of the Southern, uh, Norfolk Southern, Southern Railroad for not seating a bunch of black passengers when there was space on the train. And it was just such a great little insight into the history of segregation. So that's what I wrote about yeah. that. So it's, a, it's you know, it, the ones I do for Sue are sort of, for the reader, are a just, they're a total surprise. You know, I, I don't know what I'm going to write about for April yet. I've got some ideas, but I'm never short of ideas. I've yeah. got a list of a million miles long. <laughs> I can never get to them all. But that's the fate of every journalist is you end up killing off some of your kids, as it's called. Yeah, I was, and so I was kind of interested in that. So you're doing different modes of writing. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a favorite or, or talking about sort of the differences? I mean, you did sort of the reporting 
in the paper and then more editorials and then like you're talking about these reader columns i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how those those modes of writing are different process wise and and maybe well i think that obviously the dip major difference between what i do now and what i did as a reporter is just that i mean in my comms today i'm very free to express my opinions that's what right. their people are expecting right and but other than that i think that it's more of it's more essay writing mm. it's you know newspaper writing is is very stripped down you know you stick to the you know you stick to the facts you know and and people's opinions about it and you know and bring perspective to it but it's not it's it's much it's much drier at least on a, on a hard news level. You know, if you're doing some feature writing, you know, you have a little bit more latitude. Sports writers have more latitude, too. Um, sometimes I think they have too much. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, it used to be, the, you, know, you know, you had to have the score and the lead, and, you know, but now it's in the fifth or sixth or seventh paragraph, and I say, wait a minute, wasn't there a game played? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, you know, and I, I, you know, I understand that the, the genre has evolved, but, I mean, I don't agree with everything about it but you know essay writing is is still it's it's, it's freer i think you know i work harder at, at polishing my sentences mm -hmm. and i think that what i really try to do in my columns the columns now is i give try to really give the reader a treat a, a verbal treat uh the column that was published today how do i put it it's it's about the second amendment mm -hmm. and people miss interpreting the Second Amendment to sort of justify citizen militias, which it does not, and neither does the laws. The states and all, the, the laws in all 50 states do not just allow that. And I said something like, so is it civil, civility, liberty, and justice are not found at the end of an insurrectionist gun barrel. Mm -hmm. To me, that, that puts it right in mm -hmm. point blank terms. You know, so, you know, to, I, I, writing is often a struggle for definition. And when you're writing, if you if you're writing essays, that is all the more. It gives you a chance to be more potent about that, mm -hmm. because you you are expressing that's an that's an opinion that you would not unless you find somebody to tell you that as a newspaper reporter you're not going to be able to put that in a story. Right. And you know, most people when you're interviewing them are not that articulate. Hopefully, I'm a little of an exception <laughs> to that. But, but you know they 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 you know they people. Struggle to articulate what's on their mind mm -hmm. at that moment, and you know, some people are obviously better at it than others. Um, people who are used to speaking on camera or in their courtroom are better at it yeah. than others, but a lot of news sources aren't. And so, you know, this gives me the chance to do the speaking for people who feel might feel the same way I do, but don't have the verbal ability or the time or the insights or whatever to sort of nail it. Mm -hmm. I think a great writer. I'm not necessarily putting myself in that category, but great writing. I'll just say the great writing expresses what most people are already thinking, but they put it down in they they express it in a point blank, clear way, and to, to, to the people say, "I had that thought, but I wish I, I didn't yeah. know how to say it." And that's the thing as a writer that gives me more satisfaction, almost as much satisfaction as anything else, because I've told people something that they probably felt but didn't have the words to articulate. I also write for the Chinook Observer. Oh. And some, some of the stuff that appears on Substack appears in the Observer, but sometimes I do a separate piece for them, which then also appears in the Astorian, uh, because they're in the same company, East Oregonians. And yeah, the, the, the Observer pays me. 
which is an exception. Which yeah. is nice. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's generous for what it is, but I mean, it's nothing that's going to put food on the table for right. me, but it's nice that Matt Winters, who I respect a lot, he's the editor of the, of the, uh, of the Chinook paper. Uh, uh, it's very nice of him to do that, but Matt's, they, they, the, the Chinook paper is a good little paper. You know, it's it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a far cut above most weekly papers in this country. So they're aggressive. They have good feature writing, and they're very tied into their community, mm-hmm. which obviously a paper like that has to be. The friends were very proud of that uh, that piece you wrote about the. Uh... About the letter. Oh, the, the segregation letter. It was distributed to the staff. Yeah, they made copies and put it in everybody's staff oh, box. Everybody's staff box. It was, it yeah. was a big boost, um, a big boost for them. Um, there was discussion of it at the last library board meeting. It was very, very well received. Well, anything I could do to help literacy, uh, you know, I mean, one of the obvious trends in this country that is worrisome is, you know, this drive to censor, yeah. censor stuff. And, I, you know, Longview Libraries had... A taste of it here and there, but uh, nothing of a major. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the basic thing that comes down to me is if you don't like it, don't pick it up. Mm-hmm. Don't tell somebody else that they can't read it. Mm-hmm. You know, libraries are one of the carriers. Books and libraries are one of the carriers of civilization. You know who the poet John Milton was? Mm-hmm. John Milton was a 17th century writer who wrote the, probably the first great treatise on the freedom of the press in the English language. It's called Areopagitica. Don't tell, I'll explain that if you want, but just take my word for it. In it, he, he, he says a number of important, there's a number of soaring quotes, but he says, in some ways it'd be better to kill a man than kill a good book because a good book contains the precious lifeblood of a master spirit. Now think about that. I mean, he's saying, I mean, you got to take it with some, it's a hyperbole, obviously. You know, he's exaggerating right. for an effect. But he's, he's telling us how important great writing and great thinking are to our society. And the other thing he says is, I'm, I'm going to try and get this exact, but he said, let truth and falsehood grapple. Who knew truth put to the worst in a free and open encounter? Something to that effect. I mean, so it's like if you don't have the – it's only cowards who want to censor because they don't have – really in the long run, they don't have the, the – the confidence that their view can prevail. Right. You know, and again, if you don't want your kid to see something, just don't let them read it. You know, I mean, you, I, I acknowledge people can watch, and let the, you know, determine what their kids can. I'm not arguing about that. Mm-hmm. But don't tell me what I can have my kids read. Mm-hmm. Don't tell some, L, you know, some transgender teenager who's struggling with the issue what they can read. Mm-hmm. They're struggling with the real issue. Now, I mean, I don't think there should be, you know, the library should have pictures like, you know, like Hustler or Plant House <laughs> having full display. That's, you know, that's it. But you guys don't do that. No. I mean, you know, you, I mean, you know the public at some point has to trust, you know, the, the people who are elected or appointed to do this to use good judgment. And, you know, nobody, somebody, people make mistakes. The newspaper makes mis- made mistakes. You know, I mean, the paper is coming, up, com- coming under criticism for how they treated that story about the, the grant, mm-hmm. um, um, the, yeah. the, the oh, owner of, yeah. the, of the hotel. And I winced a little bit when I read the thing myself. But, you know, I, if I was the editor on that one, I probably would have toned it down a little bit, but I probably still would have done it because mm-hmm. the community needs to know what happened there. Yeah. You know, I mean, did it go a little far? And there's some details here and there. Yeah, probably a little bit, but it doesn't mean that you know one offense or one encounter should justify a 
an over response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we had a st- <laughs> one of the story. I didn't write this story. Thank God. <laughs> we had a. This was years and years ago. It was Christmas Eve, and there was a warehouser worker named David Elf. This is Christmas. David Elf. He was killed in a paper machine. Yeah on Christmas Eve, and we did the story, and we described in detail what happened to him. I'm not going to do it because yeah. it was it was gross. The editor made the reporter put it in her story, and the I mean the holy you know what hit the fan. Yeah, yeah, and rightly so, you know. But when you're in the information business, as you folks are, mm-hmm. you're going to make a mistake once in a while. I mean, it's part you know, especially yeah. you know, newspaper. Puts millions of words out every month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's bound to happen once in a while. There is always la- lapses in judgment. We're only human, right. you know. But you know, I think in the long run, you have to count on people's sensitivity. Right. And if you obviously have repeat offenses, then you've got a problem. But I mean, I don't think the Longview Library has anything near approaching that. And I think that the, you know, from what I've observed, the library seems to be on err on the cautious side than the other way. And I, our newspaper, I think, was the same way, too, mm-hmm. despite yeah. the fact that you know, there were some lapses in judgment. But there always are. You hope that you can maintain the relationship of trust, you know, even, even through those mm-hmm. yeah, lapses. And... Well, yeah, it... it's, it's disheartening to hear. Like, I'd read some, some criticism on, like, Nextdoor about that, that art, you know, and they're like, just destroy the paper because I didn't like how this, this thing was reported as... There were also a lot of people that, I mean, that awful story. I mean, it's an awful event, and a lot of people have questions about it. You know, lots of people are asking questions about it. Yeah, like I said, I I would have drawn the line a little bit, but, you know, I I wasn't, you know, I don't want to. Right. Yet, too, I don't want to be second guessing people too much, but I mean, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I understand why they did the story. I understand why they did the story. This tragic story. And there have been other cases, you know, like it. You know, you, you, it's interesting how you, when something like this happens, you play in your mind all the other tragic stories that have occurred. Mm-hmm. There was a guy 20-some-odd, uh, more than 20 years ago, 30 years, 25 years ago, named Russell Durskin, who was, had some mental issues, but he, you know, he was functioning. He was, he was functioning. He was, and um, he was a friendly kind of guy, and one morning he was found dead in that alley between the Longview Post Office and the Hudson Hotel. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that story, you know. I mean, it was a nice guy, and somebody just bludgeoned him to death. I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I think I think they. I'm not sure that murder was ever solved. I think it was, and there was another one. It was a big guy named Steve Wilbur killed in Rainier back in 1980. I covered that story, and the drugs were involved in that. That murder has never been solved. Solved, and I, to this day, 42 mm-hmm. years later, I still wonder if that the killer yeah. is still alive. I have a hunch wow. it was a group of people. But, uh, you know, you never forget those tragic stories. And, you know, that's why you've got, that's why a newspaper has to do them. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there's a thirst for them. And people might think it's ghoulish on one hand, but it tells us something about our society. Mm-hmm. And it tells us something, it gives us opportunity to, to know something about the neighborhoods mm-hmm. that these things occurred in. It, it, it tells us something about the crime in our community. It tells us something about the people involved. You know, there are multiple reasons. I mean, you know, and the way you draw the line on taste is, of course, varies with every story. Could you tell us why you ultimately have stayed in this area? I think that it's, there are many reasons. One, it's always been a great news town. There's always been a lot happening here. Two, I really love the fact that the newspaper was so close to its readers during my tenure there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the paper and the the town grew up with one another. And 
I like the fact that this is still not a suburbia. Mm -hmm. It's not part of the metro, Portland metro area. It's got its own identity. It's got its own unique history that I think people still appreciate and share. I don't think kids growing up in Beaverton know anything about the history of Beaverton. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I might be wrong. <laughs> you know, they probably know more about the history of Portland, yeah. but right. they probably don't know about much about the history of Beaverton. They probably don't, the people in Tigard probably don't know much about the history of Tigard. So on and so forth. People here, I think, at least have the rudiments of the history of Longview. And I, I, and I think the fact that they're this, and, and Kelso too, mm -hmm. I don't mean to be um, chauvinistic about that. <laughs> uh, and Kelso has a fascinating history. It's very different from Longview's. And I find that appealing too, because I mean, as, I like to kind of fancy myself at least a little bit of an intellectual, but I have a rough and rugged side to me too. You know, I played college ice hockey. I, you know, I, I camp and roughneck and all of that stuff. So I appreciate Kelso's logging history and boisterous history and, and so forth and so on. And it's obviously a much older history than Longview's. But I think, I think ultimately the, the sense of community is what kind of kept me here and knowing I'm writing for people who cared about what I was writing about. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm, as, I, as I age, I'm 67 now. A lot of my friends are either dying or moving away. We found out last, in the last couple of days that two of our closest friend couples are, are moving out of town. Oh. I mean, that's a bummer, you know, but I'm not planning to move myself. My daughter lives in Seattle. My son is autistic. He'll always be with us or have to be in a group home someday. Not any time I'm looking forward to, but... I, in some sense, I went through life and death with this community mm -hmm. because there were people wondering if this town could continue to exist with a vol active volcano up the road. Yeah. And if Spear Lake had, had burst out, I mean, this town would have been wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, that, that's, a, that's not my words. That's the USGS's words. A flooding unprecedented in the history of the United States. That's an exact quote from the 1982 study. So having gone through life and death mm -hmm. with this community. I don't really feel like it's a place I can leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's small and it's nice. I can walk to anything. Mm -hmm. I walked here today from my house and I'll walk home. And I, during the pandemic, I walked to work, helped me lose 20 pounds. So. Um, do you think you'll reti ever retire from writing? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I'll be doing a column every week for you know, for the rest of my life. I mean, wh whatever that is. Uh, I have other writing projects. I do want to write my memoirs mm -hmm. sometime. I think I have a fairly interesting story. It would include a lot about Mount St. Helens, but other thing, I you know, so I'd like to just document it at, 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 for the community and for my family. And if it if I can publish it somewhere, fine. I think I really, you know, the column has really kind of interfered with me trying to get my grandfather's autobiography published. Mm -hmm. My grandfather died in 1960. I was only a little over four years old, so I didn't really know him well, but I've got to know him through his autobiographies. He's mm. got two versions of it, which one is a much more um, expanded version of the first, and I've committed it to computer because it was all in hand, you know, it was just yeah. hand, it was typed, you know, on an old Smith Corona typewriter, which I still have, and uh, I think it's an interesting story because it really sheds a lot of light on some of the challenges that Ukraine have, and it's just a great story. Tomorrow, uh, 20th, 21st of March, I'm talking to the, uh, to the uh, Lions Club, and I, 
George Rader, God bless him, asked me to talk, and he, he said, well, talk about Ukraine yourself and anything else you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really don't have a real strong focus, but the focus I'm going to take is I'm going to start with reading a passage from my grandfather's book where he was deported from Russia aboard a ship with the obvious intent to have the crew assassinate him, but he somehow survives. And he survives because the British, the British seized, the, seized the ship, and he knows that Britain at least stands for law and order and pre some predictability and some civ civ civilization. And I think that's a great morph wow. into what my column is about. I mean, because I yeah. think that our, our society, the, the, the very roots of democracy and the very roots of a civil society are under attack these days. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I do the column. But I hope I don't have to do it for the next 10 years if yeah. I mercifully live that long. Um, but I do want to get around to those other things, too. But I feel like the community needs the voice. It needs the voice of experience. It needs the voice of somebody who knows the history of the town and can articulate it in a way that's brief and I hope not too not not too partisan. Mm -hmm. I'm, I will admit to being somewhat partisan, but, you know. This is, this, you know, people say they want journalists to be nonpartisan. There's no such thing as a human being that's nonpartisan. Yeah. What you hope for is somebody that is fair. Mm -hmm. And when there is objective truth or something staring you in the face that's obvious and you would completely ignore it, then you're, that, that goes over a line. You know, but you know, show me a journalist that doesn't care and I'll show you a journalist that's bad. Yeah. Because they won't have any passion about what they're writing for. And that's going to come across in their reporting and in their writing. And the reader's going to be left wondering, why should I bother with this? So I hope I've been, if I've been anything as a journalist, I hope I've been passionate. That's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, and thank you for all the work you do for this community. I think with that, we'll wrap it up. Well, thanks for having me. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening to your show. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. I'm Andre. Bye. Bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y, ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.